take our Bibles and turn to Exodus 16 this morning. Exodus 16. Delivered out of slavery, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. God's people now are walking into the Sinai Peninsula. And last week we saw that God gave them bread to eat, to nourish them in the midst of the wilderness. We focused our attention last week on their grumblings that went along with that manna. And today as we turn to finish the rest of chapter 16, we're going to look at God's, another one of God's gracious provisions, and this is the Sabbath rest. It's actually a, a perfect time for rest. It's a perfect time for a sermon on rest. You come to May and you're weary, especially those who are in and around a university setting or a school setting. Those parents who've run their children all over creation to get them to various places. People who've watched it happen and lived in a town where it happens. You come to May and you realize that we are a frenetic, panicked, worried people. Let's take a moment and read God's Word. Beginning at chapter 16, verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay it aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which it fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt." And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to, the habitable, to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the borders of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Lord, we we hear a story from the Old Testament, and we recognize that this is not surely written down just so that we can have good stories, but it is written down to instruct us, to teach us. Uh, We who now see on this side of the cross, as we pray this day that you would open your word to us, that you would grant to us the ministry and help of the Holy Spirit. And that from your word, we might know Jesus, who's been revealed here. 
We pray once again that you would be willing to wield in your hand an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to our Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my friends very kindly invited me to a study retreat that was up at Shaco Springs. This is when I lived in Mississippi. Uh, he said, there's going to be one of my favorite seminary professors there. I'd love for you to, to join me. I'm going to be there with several other pastors. And so the topic over those three days of lectures and discussions was the book of Hebrews. And all the men in that room served in the same denomination except for me. I was the only Presbyterian pastor in the room. It's not the first time or the last time that I've been a little odd. I was really grateful to be included in it, um, to have the time to learn from these other pastors. They're really kind of a sweet group of guys. Um, But on this particular subject, uh, we could not have been more different than daylight and dark. And I want to be really clear. uh, These are not men who came from what you would call kind of a, a liberal mainline church. They're not in any way usually associated with liberal theology. You wouldn't call them liberal. These are men who say they're deeply interested in God's word. They even would declare with with some firmness that God's word is inerrant and infallible. And so I was a little bit dumbfounded when one of them said, well, the fourth commandment is no longer binding on the church. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then one by one, they went around the room and they all agreed, yeah, that's no longer binding on the church. Another pastor stepped up to affirm and restate the position. Nine of the commandments are carried forward for us today. The fourth commandment is fulfilled in Christ. And I said, wait, I think all the commandments are fulfilled in Christ. The Ten Commandments, they're they're a summary of God's law. And just because Christ fulfills them doesn't mean that they go away. And so I use this to tell you what you already know. When it comes to a discussion of the Sabbath day, well-meaning Christians have many different opinions. But I would just encourage you and me as we come to a text like this, let's try not to be smarter than the Bible. Let's just read it for what it says and take what it means. I want to begin with three questions. Do you trust the heart of your Father in heaven in this way? I really do believe that the Sabbath is a blessing given to God's people full of benefits. Next, do you believe that your Father in heaven has given you this Sabbath as a gift with no cost? And then third, does your unwillingness somewhere deep in your heart, your unwillingness to rest on the Sabbath, does it say something about what you believe about God. If you knew your Father in heaven more fully, could you trust your Father in heaven more fully on this issue? And so our text in chapter 16 teaches us that God offers you rest on this wilderness journey. And so we find this morning three points, the Sabbath lover, the Sabbath lessons, and the Sabbath Lord. So let's begin with the Sabbath lover Who was the first audience to receive the book of Genesis? Who was the first audience to read it? 
The answer, it's, it's the generation that we're studying here. It's this Exodus generation. The slaves that were called out of Egypt, they're, they're summoned to a new identity. They're now known in, in their own awareness, in their own experience as the children of Yahweh. Those are the people who first read the book of Genesis. And the chronology is not a surprise. We all agree. Genesis chapter 2 comes before Exodus chapter 16. And so it was when the redeemed slaves read the account in Genesis chapter 2 that they would have learned that that this God is a Sabbath lover before he's a Sabbath giver. He spoke all things into existence in the space of six days. And at the end of six days of creation, Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. One out of seven. This one single day is meant to be unique, But the Sabbath is a a creation design. In the same way that evening and morning is a creation design. Which tells you something about God's heart. This is a God-ordained pattern that tells us about the character of the one who created the pattern. Did God need it? Was he winded and tired after speaking everything into existence? That's not what Genesis 2 says. It says he simply finished his work and he rested on the seventh day and he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. How did God make the day holy? God set the day apart as special simply by resting himself. Now why does that matter? It matters because if something is is woven and literally stitched into the fabric of creation, it's permanently set the way that God intended it to be set. So the Sabbath design is a good design from the start. Therefore, you can't change the fabric of creation. You can't change the substance of the Sabbath any more than you can change the fact that evening and morning is the first day, that fish are in water and birds are in the air, or that God created them male and female. You can't change the fact that one day out of seven is literally set apart to be a place of rest. But we try, don't we? We try to alter that. So my truck rolled into Gulf Drive, which is a little bit of a rough area of town. The seminary owned it. It's June of 2003. And the first guy who came out to meet me had been sent by the seminary to help me unload the truck. His name is Davis. And my truck, which had broken down along the way, messed up the schedule. They had a full team of people, but only Davis could show up. A big muscular guy, tattoos. We were really different because of the tattoos. (laughs) But when I began to get to know Davis, I liked him. I liked him immediately. And here's what I liked about him. Davis was just genuine. He's from Michigan. He says, my background is kind of Dutch reformed. 
Susan and little tiny baby Olivia are still back in Birmingham at the time. They're awaiting the sale of our house. It's Saturday. So as we're moving heavy things, Davis says to me, hey, what are you going to do tomorrow? And I said, well, I guess I'll find a church to go to somewhere. I'll come back. I'll get some things unpacked. I'll try to get myself ready for Monday. You know, I start Greek on Monday. Yeah, I know you do. You think it's going to get any easier through the rest of the summer? Why don't you come to church with my wife and me and then come to our house afterward? And then why don't you just go home and take a nap? Did you hear what I said, Davis? It's because I got to start school on Monday and I've got to unpack all these things. And he said, well, Eric, you're, you're exhausted. You've been trying to travel this, sim, this short trip for three and a half days. You're exhausted. And then he said, you know, I wrote a paper on this last semester. And I said, a paper on what? A paper on why Southern Christians ignore the Sabbath. So I felt the need to defend very quickly my Southernness. What are you talking about? Oh, no offense, Eric. I've just noticed that people from the South who are Christians just don't take the Sabbath very seriously. They don't really worship and they don't really rest. Southerners I've met ignore it. Kind of use it as a day to catch up on things. And in his mind, this was actually the oddest difference between Davis's background as a Dutch Reformed Presbyterian and the Southern Presbyterian who just rolled down from Alabama. To be honest, I couldn't really refute his observation. He's exactly right. But on that day, he planted a pretty useful seed that was going to have to be in place for the next three and a half years as I walked through seminary. He was right. Eric, you actually do need a rest, and you are more shaped by your culture than you are by what the creation mandate says. The Sabbath is not set apart because man is finite. The infinite God himself chose to, to, to love the Sabbath in such a way that he would stop on that day. And that's why he set the pattern. But more than that, the Sabbath is not a result of, of sin. It's not God's answer to Adam's sweaty brow or having to deal with thorns and thistles in the ground. It's not his answer to the fact that women have pain in childbirth. Though I do think that there's a case that can be made that after the fall, the Sabbath has even more an important significance for us. It's more gracious. It's more necessary. But the Sabbath exists because, they, because the holy God set a pattern that reveals something about his heart to former slaves. He says, let me be really clear. I am not a hard driving, never stop, never sleep, works-based God. I am not a harsh taskmaster who pushes his children to the point of exhaustion. Yahweh loves work and he loves rest. And in his divine wisdom, he appreciates one by contrast to the other. But Yahweh, who loves this Sabbath design, also loves to give the gift to his children. And if you misunderstand the gift, 
I suspect it's because you misunderstand the heart of the gift giver. Verse 23, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest. It's a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Skip down at verse 29. See, the Lord's given you the Sabbath. Last week, I mentioned a framework to consider as we move through this chapter. In fact, to move through the rest of the book. And that is that your grumblings and your complaints prove that you don't understand the heart of your Father in heaven. And so if your first fear when you read a passage like this is, well, what it's probably going to do is end up resulting in me being legalistic or overly rigid, it may be an indication that you don't really understand the heart of your Father in heaven. God, a a, a thoughtful, generous, loving Father who gives to his people according to their needs. And as we move ahead in this book, as we walk closer and closer to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, it is important that we do not approach Mount Sinai with the presumption that this is a rigid father who hopes that you will toe the line. As if to say that everything that hinges on this relationship is is based on your ability to do it. No. No. The Sabbath, like manna placed on the ground, is given in such a way as to draw out faith and trust from God's people. That's why the text says, this is a Sabbath to the Lord. In other words, it's a a Sabbath, a, a, a work, excuse me, a life of work and exhaustion and distraction. And here's a day to direct your heart Godward. To this kind, generous, trustworthy Father in heaven who says, here's a delightful gift that I would like to place in your lap. By faith, you look to me and I will give you rest. It's God's creation design to reveal his heart. And here's his heart. Yahweh, the Sabbath lover, is also a Sabbath giver. God offers you rest on this wilderness journey. He's a Sabbath lover, and now I want to turn and look at some Sabbath lessons. Some things are pretty obvious in the text. Verse 16 says, one omer per person per day. And then if you gathered more than that, it melted away. If you weren't able to get enough, God evened out the omer so that each person had enough to eat. And then the text says in verses 18 through 20 that 100% of the time that someone collected more than that omer and tried to save it overnight, 100% of the time it became infested with worms and it rotted. I say 100% of the time except on Friday night and Saturday, the Sabbath Each person is given two omers on Friday to prepare for the Sabbath, and Saturday comes, and this is the one day each week where it doesn't spoil. It's actually a weekly miracle right before their eyes. It's a summons to say, you can trust me, I'm the God who provides. You can trust me, I'll give you rest on that day. You don't even have to leave your tent. You don't even have to get out. Just believe me. Take it easy. Moms and dads. Can you imagine 40 straight years where no one had to prepare Sunday lunch? 40 straight years where nobody had to go out and kill something and drag it back to the tent and clean it and roast it. And yet, look at verse 27. 
on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Who do you suppose are the very people who think that on Saturday they should leave the tent and go get some more manna? Don't you suppose it's probably the same people who were trying to hoard it overnight? Philip Ryken says they went out looking for manna because they trusted neither God nor his word. And I suspect some of us would have done the same. Here's an opportunity to rest. Here's an opportunity to fully trust that God will take care of you. And everything in you deep down says, well, still, if I could just store up a little bit more, I could have enough for the time when God stops taking care of me. And I suppose that most people commend them for their diligence. Hey, that's pretty smart. Gather a little more manna. Because you never really know when the fountain's going to cut off. Pretty clever to sneak out there on Saturday morning just in case. But God doesn't think it's clever. He says, how long will you refuse to keep my commands? It's not that they forgot. It's not that they misunderstood. God who sees deeply in your hearts says, how long will you be willing to not, to fail to believe that I'm good? It's a good question, isn't it? Would you please consider God's motives for just a moment? Did God stand in heaven? Oh, okay, there's my freed slaves. I redeemed them. I brought them out of bondage. I want them to know me and trust me as their God. And so what I'll do is I'll give them one day out of seven in order to trip them up. Every other day is going to be easy. All you have to do is just work yourself to exhaustion. But on that seventh day, I'm going to make it hard. I'm going to tell them to rest. And then I'm going to give them a lot of specific rules and just see if they can nail it. That's not what happened at all. So here's the first Sabbath lesson. God gives this gift to teach you to trust him. I'm going to show you two ways in the text that God teaches you to trust him. The first is in verse 24 and the second is in verse 26. Verse 24 says, So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. And so whatever you've worked for on Monday through Saturday will not be lost by trusting God on Sunday. Since the Lord offers it, you can trust him to make sure that it will not spoil. I don't know. I just really don't know because my to-do list is very long. And I committed that I would get that bathroom painted before Monday. Don't worry, it'll still be there Monday night when you come home from work, and it'll still be there Tuesday. Your academic efforts, your business pursuits, your soccer, your basketball, your lacrosse skills, you can trust God here. They will not spoil. You will not fall behind by failing to believe God for his word on this issue. 
Is he trustworthy? Your academic efforts. But it's also important, isn't it, to listen very carefully to God's word on this issue. More than you would listen to other frantic people on this issue. Parents who run all over the southeast, hoping to secure for their 10-year-old that Division I scholarship in the next eight years. Trust God. You're going to be fine. And so is your kid. Because God loves you enough to take care of you. And you will not lose whatever God has already given you because it didn't come to you by your own efforts in the first place. Whatever it is, it will not be spoiled by believing him on his word on Sunday. The second passage that teaches us how to trust God is found in verse 26. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. The second way the passage teaches you to trust God with the Sabbath is whatever God gives you in six days, it's always enough. Do you believe that? In a frantic, exhausting week, Here's an opportunity for you to exercise faith in your heavenly father that if you don't touch it, if you don't run out and try to get it, if you don't strive to get ahead, the six days that God gave you to work will be sufficient profit. It'll always be plenty, which means you don't actually have to use Sunday to get ahead. You can use it to take a break. Second lesson of the Sabbath Use your week to prepare for Sunday. Take a look at verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord's commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over, lay it aside to be kept till the morning. I really do not like preaching sermons like this. Because you presume that I don't even live in the world that you live in. Or at least I fear that you think that. But I do. And God spoke into the world that he knew existed. I know that you have a lot going on on Saturday. I know you have tons to do. But I do wonder how our Sunday could be shaped differently if we used every other day of the week to get ready for it. Instead of using Sunday to panic about Monday, what if we used Monday through Saturday to prepare for Sunday so that you can rest and stop chasing your tail? Third lesson of the Sabbath, this day proves your freedom. It proves your freedom, so you should be willing to be unique. And this is a stark way, but it's refreshing For Christians to be able to show that they are unique to the watching world. I'm drawing this contrast between Egypt and Israel. A contrast of a nation that was to be splendidly unique from the rest of the world. The church and you and me as God's children are likewise to be splendidly unique. Because freedom in this country is a really strange thing. We talk about it. But we are enslaved to lesser gods that run us ragged. You do know that, don't you? Yahweh is the only God in the entire cosmos 
who says, it's okay, you can rest. The lowercase g-o-d of academic success always whispers, hey, you're falling behind. There's more you need to do. Keep grinding, get tutoring, get practice tests. The lowercase g-o-d of athletic achievement always says you will never get better if that 10-year-old over there has 50 games in a year and yours only has 12 You must push them. The lowercase g-o-d of your vacation spot. In the beginning, it promised you, if we buy this, we'll have a getaway. It promised you rest, and then you end up spending afternoons and weekends fixing the plumbing and working double to pay for it. And in the end, you have to work hard. To ever get a moment to enjoy it. And then your vacation is exhausting. And the older you get, you realize, don't you? That the things that you think you own, subtly own you. And you also have hobbies. Hobbies that steal your rest. Well, I got to get better. I'm terrible. I'm chasing golf balls all over the course. And it robs you of a moment to go, I don't have to try anymore. I can stop on this day. God says you can stop now. I've set you free. And now just simply turn and show the world that I'm the only God who really can give you rest. Do you know the statement that this would be to the world? For a church who cares so much about missions, Israel was a missions country. A nation to be established in the world utterly different. And the church takes on that mantle as well. And it's okay. I genuinely do not expect the world to adopt my heart on this matter. I do not expect the world to adopt God's heart. But God intended that we could use the Sabbath to prove that there is freedom in serving Yahweh. Here's a God who gives rest and no other God can. God offers you rest on this wilderness journey. Sabbath lover, Sabbath lessons. We close with Sabbath Lord. On one point, we can agree with our friends at the pastor's conference at Shaco Springs. Jesus did fulfill the fourth commandment. What we disagree on is how Christ fulfilled that principle. And then what does his fulfillment mean for me? I think it's about provision and foretaste. Jesus says in Mark chapter 2 that the Sabbath was made for man. Clearly, this is a day that God has given as a gift. And then he says, it's not man for the Sabbath. Meaning, God has not given this to you in order to enslave you to its keeping. It's not there to trip you up. It's not there to cause you to fail. But then he says, so it is that the Son of Man is even the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning that God's Messiah, the Christ, will use the Sabbath for his own purposes. Provision and foretaste. That's the very point of Exodus 16. Because I think if you read the whole thing in context, you'd wonder, what's the connection between manna and Sabbath? 
It's about provision and foretaste. You come to the end of chapter 16. From verse 31 to the end, it almost seems like there's some editorial comments. An editor came in and he needed to scribble in some points. There are two points at the end that are worth noticing. Verse 31, manna was like coriander seed. It was white and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. In order to tell them in the midst, standing in between the bitter slavery in Egypt and the sweet taste of the land of Canaan, that land which is flowing with milk and honey, God says, I'm going to give you a 40-year consistent food to nourish you. Provision. But it is also sweet. It is a daily foretaste for them of the coming land flowing with milk and honey. So when Jesus says in John chapter 6 that I'm the bread of heaven, he means I'm the consistent spiritual food to nourish your soul. Provision. But also a foretaste. That is, for those who were bound in the bitterness of slavery to sin, he says, I'm taking you to a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus is the sweet foretaste of that coming communion to you in the Father. And so he means, I'm the Savior to grumbling, hungry travelers. When you take me by faith, you'll see that I am not bitter like slavery. I'm sweet to your soul like manna. Second point to notice. Verse 33 through 35 tells us that manna was placed in a jar. It was set aside to be put in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony to be kept along with Aaron's staff and the table of the law. The message, you can trust God forever to be your bread and your rest. So how does Christ fulfill the Sabbath rest? Apart from the work of God's grace, your spiritual life would be exactly like your daily life. Frantic, striving, exhausting. And you would never feel that you had done enough or that you'd worked hard enough or been obedient enough to earn God's love. Jesus is your Sabbath rest in this way. He says you can't. You can't work hard enough or do enough or be obedient enough. Why don't you take me as your Savior? Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. You will find rest for your soul. Since Christ is the spiritual rest for your soul, you and I approach Sunday through that same lens of provision and foretaste. Jesus has provided for me a righteousness that I could never achieve. Therefore, I rest. And I really do rest. I don't throw out the Sabbath because of Christ. I enjoy the Sabbath more because of Christ. And my weekly Sunday rest is a reminder that Christ is plenty provided for me. And he is true rest. How is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath? The same way that he's the bread of life. He's nourishment for hungry pilgrims and he's rest for weary travelers. God offers you rest on this wilderness journey. Let's pray.